Hi Brickies, I'm Dominic, the last one standing with a kink for cannibalism. And I'm Kate, the resident phobia expert who also hears voices. And you're listening to Shit and Bricks. A podcast where we talk shit about stuff that scares us. Ripping a few laughs and survival tips along the way. As always, please subscribe, rate and review us. And don't forget to follow us on the socials at Shit and Bricks Podcast. Like the morning after a night on the curries and cans, here it comes. So drop your ducks, pop a squat and let's get into it. I'm so <laughs> slow with this shit. Is it me? Am I out of touch? <laughs> no, it's the children. <laughs> Am I the drama? Is Kate the drama? Are we the drama? Hi, Kate. Hi, Dom. You little <laughs> snuggy buggy ruggy. How are you? Call me the purple rain of the Smurf family. Ooh. So like Prince? Prince. <laughs> the artist formerly known as Prince, the Purple Rain of Smurfville. <laughs> for those that I can't tried see. just to, Yeah. I was trying to think of how do I do a Prince impersonation, but every single, the first six things that ran through my mind would just not. Yeah. <laughs> That's it's like Michael Jackson. See? That ran through my head, but I didn't do it. I'm glad you did. <laughs> the fact that I could hit that note is—that's great. Golden. I think it's because you are sick is that is why you can hit those notes. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Oh Well, for our listeners, we've both been under the weather. I've had COVID for a second time, um, which is just—it's different symptoms every day. It's just a treat. Uh, but I'm feeling much better today, so that's nice. Um, and Dom, talk us a little bit through your last few days. I'm just losing complete bodily function. Um. <laughs> I'm just losing control, <laughs> losing my mind. To be perfectly honest, it's not that very different from most daily no. life for me. But um, well, that's right. At least I'm doing it on someone's Airbnb floor, bed, sheets bathroom so i'm okay wonderful uh, i do feel for you kate having covid is shouldn't be a laughing matter um australia's going through what it sounds like is another wave <clears throat> mm. so uh i think you're like the 10th friend or family that i know that's gotten sick again yeah um so ugh, when but i'm fortunate so over? I know. Tell me about it. Um, one thing, though, is that I'm glad to be here talking to another human being, albeit remotely, because I haven't really spoken to anybody in four days. And you guys might you, – you probably know me a little bit now. I like to talk. I like to communicate. I like to bounce ideas off people. Being alone in my own mind is – we should just do a whole episode on that. Talk about being afraid of things. It's just not, it's not great for me. So I'm looking forward to going back to work, to seeing all of my family there. Um, and I'm excited to be here to tell you this story. I did a lot of research into this one today, so I'm excited to share it with you all. But do we have any housekeeping? We absolutely do have some housekeeping. Um, I don't know where to begin um <laughs> it's maybe, up to you yeah maybe we'll just start with the usual 
Yeah, okay, that sounds like a plan. Do we have any podcasts that we want to shout out today? I was actually just thinking that and I'm like, fuck, I didn't prepare <laughs> didn't prepare one. So do you know what? Okay. Fuck it. We're just going to... No, we don't. Here we go. I've got one and it's got nothing to do with anything that we ever do but one I listened to today. And okay. it's called Lit- Literally and it's by a person you might not know him. His name's Rob Lowe um, oh. and he does it and it's funny and <laughs> it's great and he talks to people. But I'm finding the more episodes I listen to, he kind of tells the same story every episode. So I feel like I know Rob Lowe really well now which is good for me. I love that he's sort of built into his podcast the fact that m- most people are only going to listen to one episode. So he's like, yeah, I'll just tell the same story. I'll just the same story. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Every person he interviews. But no, it's very funny and it's just lots of celebrities. He just talks to lots of celebrities. It's good. Oh, fair enough. Well, sadly, literally the podcast is not part of the Boo Pod Network, but it it's should not. be. <laughs> sure. Rob, if you're listening, <laughs> reach out. <laughs> Um, apart from that, I don't think I have, no, we don't have any other regular housekeeping. Um, okay, cool. It's the usual, like go check out our Patreon. We really appreciate and love all of our, our fans and we thank you for listening. But also if you feel generous enough to, to give us one or $2 a month towards keeping the lights on or keeping the uh, medical bills paid for Kate and I. (laughs) This is more important. We are both about to begin a mental health plan with our local GPs. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Well, in that case, why don't I get into some of our um, etymology for today? Our, yeah. I love looking up words. It's my new favourite hobby is each of the phobias that I look up. I like to tell you all a little bit about it. So my last episode that I did was about being lost in the desert and it got me on a bit of a rabbit hole of Uh, people being lost in places and another place that people tend to get lost is the snow so I've done an episode today called lost in the snow I have definitely gotten lost in the snow one or two nights so (laughs) well there you go actually there's a story here if I've got time for it which you know it could very well be something that you've (laughs) experienced or gotten to who knows but let me jump into it. We are, we've successfully gone six minutes without starting the episode, so I'm getting into it now. Okay, so lost in the snow. Here's a couple of fears for you. I'm going to throw them at you. The fear of cold. So there's a few different ones. The fear of cold is number one. So if you're scared of the cold, it's called cryophobia. So that's, you know, cryogenics, all of that sort of stuff. Uh, cryo comes from the Greek word krios, which means cold or frigid. And then phobos is fear. So uh, cryophobia. Um, it's often worse during winter months, believe it or not. It's not <laughs> as bad during the summer. And so, some people are afraid of cold air temperatures while others fear touching cold objects. Cryophobia may stem from many different root causes, but it's most often linked to a subjective perception of cold and negative associations with the sensation of cold. However, each person experiences temperatures differently, so the threshold for cold is different for everyone. So that's have you, cryophobia. Have you ever met someone that's actually afraid of the cold? Like, I don't like the cold, obviously. Look at me. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know anyone I've that's afraid of I've not met anyone it. who's a cryophobe. No, I haven't. But, you know, I've never asked. So maybe I have, and then I've just never asked them. But, it, you know, it, I can't imagine during the winter they're out very often so we probably wouldn't be exposed to them going god i'm absolutely i have a phobia of this why am i standing outside in the snow 
<laughs> what an idiot. <laughs> All right. The next phobia I want to share with you is the fear of snow. Uh, now, this one's a little bit more specific. Uh, it is called... Uh, uh, <laughs> it's, it's how I would read it as chionophobia. Uh, but it's a Greek word, so I'm saying that incorrectly. Um, Geonophobia. So Geonophobia. It comes from uh, the Greek word for snow, which is like kioni. Kioni. Oh, okay. Or I don't, but I don't. I think like the the k sound is actually silent, so it's like hioni. Um, so there you go. And that's often linked to other phobias, which uh, those with a fear of cold, severe weather, or water might be afraid of snowstorms, even when they're at home. Um, people with fears of driving, being trapped or becoming contaminated are typically afraid only when they have to go out in the snow. And the fear ranges from mild to severe, maybe extremely life limiting for those who live in colder climates. Yes, you would think that. I agree. True. Okay, now, just in case you yes. were wondering, I think you uh -huh. definitely have um, some potential of being like a phone sex worker, but speaking in a Greek accent. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> oh fantastic okay i'll put that on my list of jobs that i can do <laughs> yeah just look I, it's she, a logical thing that flows she was on so a naturally. high school teacher but it didn't work out so well so she became a sex a phone sex worker but specifically with a greek accent yeah. even though she is like white 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 european all the way through generations okay, okay finally the third Fear, and I really like this one, is it was tied into the ones I was looking at. It's a fear of the northern lights. It's called aurorophobia. That makes sense. Yeah. And uh, it derives from the Latin word aurora, meaning dawn or the goddess of the dawn, uh, named after her. And borealis, which is derived from the Latin word for north or north northern or north wind. Um, it's an unusual, but it's a very real phobia. The fear is generally based on a larger phobia of astronomical phenomena. Uh, astronomy, yeah, astronomy, astronomy and astrology have been heavily linked throughout history and some astronomical fears are based on religious or doomsday phobias. In other cases, these fears are rooted in a generalised fear of the unknown. Wow. So those are three phobias that I found to share with you all today. Phobias. Um, phobias. I'm so fascinated that there's such specific phobias for for these, you know, rare yeah, things. Or pretty or... much anything. You can almost have a phobia about anything. And I like finding out what they are and then sharing the etymology with you all, often Greek or Latin, sometimes Roman, but mostly Greek or Latin. Can anyone tell Kate hasn't taught in like four or five days? She's like, <laughs> dumb. Did you know I this? Need, I need to share my education with you. Five times Listen five to is me. 35. <laughs> Let's do our do times tables. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm afraid. I have a phobia of times tables. There you go. Yeah, phobia go. of mathematics. I'll do that next time. All right. So now I've shared some phobias with you. I want to tell you a couple of stories um, of people who have had some time in the snow um, or in very cold environments. So not maybe not specifically snow, but I found a couple of historic stories that I wanted to share with you. The first one I thought was just really cool because of what uh, this person did. And then, then the one after that, it's, it's, there's a lot more detail. So let me tell you this first one. So in 1912, an Australian geologist, shout out, and explorer Douglas Mawson set off with two companions, dog handler Belgrave Ninnis and world champion skier Xavier Mertz to explore an uncharted area of Antarctica. So 1912, so we're going back a little ways. 
Now, yeah. it proved to be sl uh, slow going with Antarctic storms hindering the progress, but they'd still managed to get 1,200 miles out from base when disaster struck. Uh -oh. Out of nowhere, a massive crevice opened up underneath the party, swallowing up the sledge carrying most of the food, six of the strongest dogs, and Ninnis. So one of their party fell down this crevice. The remaining pair apparently spotted two injured dogs on a ledge 165 feet below them, but Ninnis, there was no sign of him. With only a week's supply of food remaining and a five-week journey back to base, Mawson and Mertz decided to turn back right away, shooting the weakest dogs for meat as they went. I do not condone but at the same time I understand in the sense of them needing to survive. However, little did they know, and here's a fun tip for you, little did they know that Husky's livers contain toxic levels of vitamin A, which slowly poisons you, and it poisoned these two guys, and it causes strips of your skin to fall off. Ew. What the motherfuck? Right? So don't eat Husky's livers. That's your tip for today. If there's one thing you take away from this podcast, do not eat Husky livers. Now, Mertz began to go, uh, go mad because of the uh, vitamin A levels. He... <laughs> was trying to bite off his own fingers during their travels and he tried to destroy their tent. So he's not having a good time. Three weeks after Ninnis' accident, um, not Ninnis, the other guy, Mertz, uh, he died of starvation and exposure and vitamin A poisoning. So that's bad. Mawson, however, stumbled on alone. His physical condition, whew, this is so great and partly why i wanted to add, to add this into the story his physical condition was now so bad that according to america's pbs news every morning before he rose he had to reattach the soles of his feet which became separated from the overlying flesh oh my goodness kate I'm yeah picturing that and i don't know if that special cream that you used would have done the trick <laughs> magic cream the magic does he just tuck them into his socks like how do you just reattach the soles oh. of your feet like do you i don't i don't know anyway mawson was determined to return the data and the specimens that they collected so he's still like no i'm a geologist i'm an adventurer i've got to get this stuff back to base so he's trying on his own popping his feet back on and his survival, he survived. His survival is a testimony to his courage, physical strength and psychological resilience. He struggled for 30 days, eventually reaching the base only to miss the ship, retrieving the men by six hours. So he got back to the base and was like, I'm going to pop on the ship. We'll get home, get my feet done. He misses the boat by six get, hours. Get, get a nice petty petty. Get, get a petty. <laughs> <laughs> now, instead of returning on the Aurora, which was the name of the ship, six men who had volunteered to search for the party, um, they met with Mawson. So they were like, hey, we didn't go back. We stayed to look for you and you turned up. What? This is great. Great news. So the small group, um, you know, they were waiting but they had to wait a little time for the boat to return because obviously that trip from the Antarctic back to Australia takes a bit of time. So they were just uh, hanging out in the snow for another 10 months. 
Jesus. <laughs> so it's just a quick little 10 month. How does someone whose skin is falling off them just... Yeah. Just I, hang know, out for 10 months. I'm just picturing Death Becomes Her. They're just, you yeah. know, it's just some <laughs> Plug, spray paint. Plugging the things back on. Some spackles. <laughs> yeah, we'll just sew your soles back on, Dal. Yeah, don't right. worry about it, Dal. You'll be right. So they waited for 10 months. Uh, then they did get picked up and he survived. And he was amazing. This is what I loved because I found this little other bit of information. But Douglas Mawson's uh, expedition was the first trip and the first time that an Antarctic radio link was set up. So yeah. they took all of the equipment to Antarctica to set up a radio link with Tasmania and it, and it worked. It was still really new technology, but they, you know, used a, a transmitter and then it was, uh, you know, operated using long wave and Morse code tele- telegra- telegraphy. Yeah. <laughs> I was about to say like, there's the boat there on yeah. the land. They're like, yeah. Oh, How do radio we get... would be such yeah, a great gosh. idea right now. <laughs> That'd be great. But yeah, but that um, was the first time and it was an Aussie guy. I love that. I really enjoyed reading that, learning a new fact about, you know, Douglas Mawson. What a legend. Okay, listeners, what you should take from this is that Australians are no joke. We we get shit done. We do. Feet or no feet, okay? It. We don't need feet to do the work. That's what we're saying. I will walk 500 miles. And I, <laughs> and will, I walk. will walk 500 more just <laughs> to set up a telegraph station in Antarctica. Um, just to be the man without soles at his feet. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a pretty impressive, uh, you know, 30-day struggle and then another 10 months um, for Douglas Mawson to survive living in those conditions and then to make it back and to continue on with some of his amazing, you know, technological advancements and finds and geological, you know, things. That's really cool. So love a little Aussie story to start us off with. But as long the as they one... don't like, you know, serve him some husky hot dogs or something as soon yeah, as Yeah, no gets husky back. livers. I'm a pass on the husky livers. Thank you so much for asking. Now, this next story, there's a a bit to it and I cut it back a long way. So if you want to read any more, you know, uh, in-depth detail on this story, you can certainly look it up. It's an amazing story. And I was just caught up on it. So I have cut it down a bit to share with everyone here, but this is the story of Ernest Shackleton and the ship Endurance. Ironic. What a story. Uh, It's unbelievable. So to share with our listeners, on August 8th in 1913, uh, the Endurance ship sailed for the Antarctic via Buenos Aires and the sub-Antarctic island of South Georgia, where there was a Norwegian whaling station. On the uh, November 5th, 1914, they arrived. Oh, I said that. I said 13 before. It's 14. Anyway, they arrived at South Georgia. Shackleton learnt much from the whaling captains about the conditions between there and the Weddell Sea, which indicated that this was a particularly heavy ice year. The plan had been to spend only a few days collecting stores, but instead the endurance remained at South Georgia for a month to allow the ice further, to, further south to disperse. The month was one where bonds of friendship and mutual respect were formed between the endurance crew and the Norwegian whalers. Bonds that would prove that would prove unexpectedly useful sometimes later to Shackleton and his men. So with this particular trip 
uh, we will, I will put, I've saved a picture of the journey, which we'll share on our oh, socials. And during this time, so 1914, when Ernest packed up the ship and, you know, all of the guys that were coming with him in the materials and things, um, they had heard that the war was getting started. Basically, they were rallying all the troops. So he called back home and was like, if you want their ships or if you want us to come back, then we will. Like this expedition is pretty, you know, amazing and I won't get another chance to do it, but it's the war. So if you want me to come back, I will. Um, but then Winston Churchill called him and was like, nah, you're good. Go on your trip. It's going to be fantastic. You're right. We'll take care of the war. You just go on. You booked um, it and you'll leave, hon. You yeah, to, you, just, you, you deserve it. You deserve a time out. So um, that was in the morning of, you know, that day and that night World War One started. So it was, you know, one of those things. Wait, that's right, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. World War One. I. I get confused between my wars. <laughs> a historian I am not. Okay, so Ernest has packed up all his stuff. They've gone to South Georgia, made friends with these Norwegian whaling station people, stayed there for a month, um, waiting for the ice to, uh, you know, melt a bit so that they don't get their ships stuck. Yeah, now, for all those Jed Zs out there, our world was once covered in ice and correct. You know, due to a lot of tomfoolery. <laughs> <laughs> that the world is a is really getting, great way to put it. Our the tomfoolery. world's getting warm. <laughs> It is. Okay. Now, the Waddell Sea was known to be particularly icebound at the best of times, and the endurance left with a deck load of coal in addition to normal, normal stores to help with the extra load on the engines when it came to pushing through the pack ice in the sea. Extra clothing and stores were taken from South Georgia in the event that the endurance may have to winter in the ice if caught in the Waddell Sea as it froze, unable to reach the, the continent first. They left South Georgia on the 5th of December, 1914. The Endurance battled her way through a thousand miles of pack ice over a six week period and was 100 miles or one day sail from the destination. When on the 18th of January in 1915, the ice closed in around the ship. The temperature dropped dramatically, cementing together the loose ice that surrounded the ship. On the one hand, it wasn't totally unexpected, so they had planned for this or you know they thought that this could happen it had happened to ships in the arctic and the antarctic many times however it was a significant setback for shackleton the disappointment would have been bitter he was 40 years old his country was at war and the expedition had taken huge amounts of effort and energy to prepare and he was unlikely to ever to ever have this opportunity again the ship was drifting to the southwest with the ice Attempts were made to free the ship when sometimes cracks would appear in the ice nearby, but no avail. The ice around the ship itself was thick and solid. Men with heavy improvised ice chisels and iron bars breaking up the ice near the ship, and then the ship was at full speed, had no effect at all. So yeah. they just continued to drift with the, the ice. By the end of February, it boggles my brain the time that they spend doing this stuff. Back in, you know, the early 1900s, like this is crazy by the end of february temperatures had fallen and were regularly at negative 20 degrees celsius the ship was now clearly frozen in for the winter so imagine that you're like we're working really hard through january and then it's february and they go oh well it's winter time now so we'll just have to wait until spring i know and we talk about being locked in for covid or you know five days not speaking to anyone i guess they yeah. had each other and I mean, I mean, you could try and get the whole crew to all piss on the ice all at the same time. That <laughs> sure. might 
but it was pretty thick. I don't think they were getting through it with their little wheeze, but, you know, uh, yeah, look. Now, the problem was because they're frozen in for the winter, their worry was that the drifting ice is just going to, you know, float them wherever and yeah. somewhere where it would be impossible to break out of during the spring. So they could have been going to a you know, colder place where they were just trapped for forever. Yeah, I think so- people forget, like, that it's once you're stuck in the ice, it doesn't mean that you're not moving. Like yeah, that's all right. All of that is shifting and changing and you can travel just as far. Yeah, <laughs> anyway. exactly. No, exactly right. The sides of the ship were cleared so that if the ice began to press together, then hopefully the endurance would be able to rise above the ice and ride on it rather than being crushed by it. Mm-hmm. So that's something else to remember. This ice is closing in and it will just keep going regardless of things being in its way. If it can move the things, it will. Um so everybody on the ship knew that either one of two things is going to happen. Either the pack ice would thaw and break up and disperse in the spring so the ship would be freed or it would consolidate and driven by the effects of wind and tide over hundreds of miles, it would take hold of the ship and crush it like a toy in a vice. Now they were sort of keeping an eye on this. They're like, which way is this going to go? And unfortunately, the first real damage was to the stern post, which twisted with the planking buckling in the same area and she sprang a leak. The bilge pumps were started and the leak was initially kept in check. On October 27th, so they were stuck in Feb and Uh now it's October. Uh So a bit of time's passed. Shackleton had a uh, journal that he kept, which they were able to recover. There are also other, yeah, archive items that they were able to, to get. I'll go into a little bit more detail later. But Shackleton wrote on October 27th that the position was last latitude, longitude, longitude. Um, the temperature was negative 8.5 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's like negative 30 Celsius. It's crazy. A gentle southerly breeze was blowing. The sun uh, was blowing and the sun shone in a clear sky after long months of ceaseless anxiety and strain after times when hope beat high and times when the outlook was black. Indeed, we have been compelled to abandon the ship, which is crushed beyond all hope of ever being righted. We are alive and well, and we have stores and equipment for the tasks that lie before us. The task is to reach land with all the members of the expedition. It's hard to write what I feel. Mm. So after that time, they were sort of waiting for one option or the other. So from February to October, they're like, it will either melt the ice or it'll crush our ship and crush its ship. It did. I have saved some pictures, which you need to go to our socials and look at, and you can look it looks as though there's just a bit of driftwood on the ice by the final kind of stages. Oh, wow. It absolutely destroyed this ship. The ice just completely covers it over. There's like a few bits of timber and things like that, but it, yeah, ate the ship. Yeah, it's like Batman. Yeah, precisely. Now, the Endurance had drifted at least 1,186 miles before, uh, since first becoming fast in the ice, 281 days previously. She was 346 miles from Paulette Island, the nearest point where there was any possibility of finding food and shelter. The Endurance finally broke up and sank below the ice and the waters of the Waddell Sea on November 21st, 1915. The men had saved as many supplies as they could before she disappeared. So the boat was literally gone. It's so it's not I when I was reading this, I was like, I have never thought about that in Mm. the extreme sense of the ice, like taking your ship and crushing it and burying it wild the 28 men of the expedition were now isolated on the drifting pack ice hundreds of miles from land with no ship 
no means of communication with the outside world and limited supplies. What was worse was the ice itself was now starting to break up as the Antarctic spring got underway. On December 20th, Shackleton decided that the time had come to abandon their camp and march westward to where they thought the nearest land was at Paulette Island. They had three lifeboats named after patrons of the expedition who donated these funds. There were now men, uh, there were now manhauled in, they were the ship, these boats, they were now manhauled in relays. So they had the James Card, the Dudley Docker and the Stancombe Wills. Those are the three, uh, you know, lifeboats that they were carrying around with them whilst they're hiking on the breaking up snow ice stuff. And he comes Nightmare. and it's wandering along with, with no feet. <laughs> hey, boys, there's Get a out radio of here. there. <laughs> Actually, it's around the same time, so it's like I wonder where. Well, I mean, I mean, the Antarctic's reasonably big, I think. It's not like a suburb, but so I feel like they could have been in different spots. But um, Now, these 28 uh, humans were all forced into the boats by the thinning ice, um, which became increasingly fragile on April 9th. 1916 Uh, and they made their way across a stretch of open water by the evening they were once again able to haul the boats onto a large ice floe and pitch their tents so this is they left the boat the ship the endurance in december and started walking across the ice to try to get to land it's now april (laughs) january february that's like five months of walking on ice to try and find land like it's so long like a week is a long time they're spending months doing the same thing every day well no that's like 14 months since they first actually left or whatever correct yeah that's right gosh imagine trying to explain that to the missus like i swear my boat got stuck in the ice and then it sunk it's almost like the blues brothers when he's like (laughs) with carrie fisher in the (laughs) under the tunnel (laughs) um okay Now, the whole group kept together, were kept together in the monotonous and strenuous task of pulling laden lifeboats across broken up ridged ice floes. It was now 14 months since the Endurance had become frozen in the ice and nearly five months since she'd sunk, marooning them in featureless icy wilderness. On April 12th, Shackleton found that instead of making good progress westward, they had actually traveled 30 miles to the east because (laughs) of the drifting ice. (laughs) But the good news about this is, Paulette Island, off the Kentucky tour, guys. Off we go to Elephant Island. So they Yay. found this other spot. <laughs> they made landfall and they were ecstatic to do so. It had been 497 days since they last set foot on land. So Elephant Island looks great this time of year. Yeah. Now, for the time being, they were more safe and secure than they had been for a long time, but they were still stranded far from civilization with no one knowing where they were or what condition they were in. There was no chance of a rescue. Shackleton realized that in order to effect a rescue, he was going to have to travel to the nearest uh, inhabited place, which was the whaling station back in South Georgia. And that was 800 miles across the most stormy stretch of ocean in the world. So it's not just a little row across the lake. This is some of the most intense, stormy, hectic ocean on the planet. And it's 800 miles of that to get anywhere where there's a person. And what, he's going to do it in a little dinghy? Well, we'll see. Uh, They expected expected to encounter waves that were 50 feet from tip to trough. Cape Horn Rollers is what they called them. And they were going to take a 22-foot longboat. 
So it's not exactly a dinghy, but it's certainly not something you want to be <laughs> going into the most stormy, hectic sea on the world in the world. Um, now their navigation was by sextant. Mm. Now that is uh, an instrument for those of you who might not know. I had to look it up, but it's an instrument for determining the angle between the horizon and a celestial body, such as the sun or the moon or a star, and they use it to um, navigate and determine latitude and longitude. It's really cool. You would know what it is by just looking at a picture of one. Mm. Um, now they were dependent on <laughs> they were dependent on sightings of the sun that could sometimes not be seen for weeks because it was overcast. Uh, so this sounds like a great time. So like 22 foot long boat, 800 miles through the most dangerous sea on the planet, 50 foot waves. We've got a sextant. We've got, you know, some music. I don't know what we've got. It doesn't really sound like we have a lot, but why don't we give it a crack? That's the thinking. I was about to say, whoever was in charge of like stocking and preparing all the the food and the things that they needed to survive. Like whoever's job that was, they should get a bloody raise because clearly this, this trip has gone a little bit longer than expected and they've still got food. They're still still okay. Still got the skin on the bottom of their feet. Well, that's a bonus. Always a bonus. Um, Now, everybody was saying too through this whole time that Shackleton was just a bit of a legend. He just kept morale up. He kept everybody sane. He kept people moving. You know, there's still 27 other guys that he's looking out for and he knows it's his expedition. He knows that this is, you know, not his fault, but it's definitely he got them there. So he's going to try and get them them out. Um, Now, one of the, uh, you know, lifeboats that they had, the James Card, it set off on April 24th, 1916. Uh, that was the very last day before the pack ice closed in again around um, Elephant Island. So they were fortunate enough to, to get out. The crew of their, you know, rescue mission uh, was Shackleton, Worsley, Crean, McNeish, McCarthy and Vincent. So they took a few, left the rest at Elephant yeah. Island. The anticipated journey time was a month. Yeah. <laughs> um, in a what, 22 what's foot a month? boat. What's a month? I mean. <laughs> Forget it. Well, it's fine. That's like a spot on the map. Nobody minds. And it was to become one of the most astonishing small boat journeys of all time. The James Card uh, made progress at the rate of around 60 to 70 miles a day through rough sea conditions. So they need to go 800 miles. So they're nearly clocking it at 70 miles a day in rough sea, which is pretty good. Yeah, not bad. Yeah. On May 5th, the 11th day out at sea, the sea became much rougher. Shackleton wrote in his journal, I called to the other men that the sky was clearing. And then a moment later, I realized that what I had seen was not a rift in the clouds, but the white crest of an enormous wave. During 26 years of experience in the ocean in all of its moods, I had never encountered a wave so gigantic. This man and his journaling... <laughs> um, <laughs> Imagine he's like, guys, it's clearing up. Oh, that's a wave. Hang on, best pop it in my journal. Hold on. Just give me a minute. Dear diary. <laughs> Dear Holy diary. fuck. <laughs> Good golly, Miss Molly. There's a wave <laughs> heading our way. Um, better go, XOXO, Shackleton. <laughs> <laughs> P.S. I'm a bit wit. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Now, on the morning of the 8th of May, so on the 5th of May, they saw the giant wave. Guess what? They survived it. And on the morning of the 8th of May, they began to see kelp floating in the sea. 
Then they saw some seabirds. And just after noon, they caught a glimpse of South Georgia. Only 14 days after leaving Elephant Island, it took about as half as long as they thought it would take. But despite being so close and they were running out of fresh water to drink, they had no choice but to wait for the next morning to break before attempting to land on the shore because of a rocky reef that was preventing them from getting the boat on the shore. So after a couple of days, <laughs> so they're thinking, sitting there in Kate, the ocean. Yeah. I'm just thinking, you know, when you hear old people just say, oh, the young generations are just not made of sterner stuff, you know? Yeah. You're so soft. I always just scoff at that stuff and go, yeah, you don't know nothing. But after this story, I'm like, okay, I'm piss yeah. weak. I'm a little softy. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way that I would just be like, oh, guys, you know, we've after two weeks on the ocean and we nearly died heaps of times, there's the land, but we can't land safely. So where everyone's going to wait in the boat until it's safe and then we'll try again. Now, after a couple of days, the seas, <laughs> this is so wild to me, the seas got really rough again and like blew them 30 more miles away from the, from the, <laughs> from the shore. Of course. So now they're like, ah, oh, piss, we got to get back again. After they managed to find their way back, they were finally able to dock at South Georgia. Yay. <laughs> now they docked, but the whaling spot that they were looking for, so all the people that they knew, that was still another 22 miles away from where they landed their boat. Of course it was. Of course it was. And in order to get there, they had to go across the backbone of mountains that ran the entire length of South Georgia. Now, that sounds bad enough. And they had all of their maps and stuff with them. But this is a journey that no one had ever managed. The map depicted the area as blank. <laughs> so no one had even done this to be a cartographer to draw this because they're like nah fuck it <laughs> we'll just leave it blank who's gonna ask who's ever gonna be here don't worry about it google map says to go round yep so we're we going go round. round everybody back on the boat <laughs> now on may 15th uh shackleton crean and worsley so three of the um crew they set out to cross the mountains and reach the whaling station. So they left the other guys back with the, you know, the rescue boat, which I think is quite a good idea, to be honest, because you're like, well, they stay with the boat. If anything happens to us, then they've got a way out. Or I don't know. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, Shackleton was trying to work it out the best he could. So they set out across the mountains to reach the whaling station. They climb over the mountains. Uh, they stop themselves from freezing to death. And then they could finally see the whaling station. They're like, hey, it's down there. There's the whaling station. We've we've walked all this way and we've climbed all these mountains. The only way to get down to the whaling station, by the seams of it, is to go down a freaking waterfall. And that's the only way say. we can get there. <laughs> I was so. just about to say, what bloody necks. Oh, so they had to traverse down the side of this really dangerous and tall waterfall to try to get to the whaling station. So they managed to safely traverse down there. Who knows how long that took. Uh, and then they finally get there. They arrived at like 6.30 and then Shackleton said, where are all the people? And Warsley was like, wait till seven. People will turn up for work at seven. So sure enough, <laughs> half an hour later, there was a bell that rang and all these people started turning up. But Shackleton, Crean and Worsley, they'd been, you know, 
they haven't had an opportunity to go to the spa or the, the hairdresser or have a shower over the past bit of time. So they looked pretty scary. So they would go up to people to ask for help or be like, hey, we're, you know, looking for some people to help us out. And people would just flat out run away from them. They were like, nah, I don't know who you are. And they'd just run off. They scared children. They were just, yeah, trying to figure out what was, what was the best way to like communicate with someone. When they finally, you know, reached South Georgia and got to the whaling station past there, they met some of the people that they had become really close to the year before. Yeah. Um, so they finally got a chance to talk to them and then they started to put together the plans for a rescue mission. So on May 23rd, 1916, they had their first rescue attempt. So Shackleton set out on the Southern Sky, which was a whaling boat, uh, and they were heading out to Elephant Island and then they were turned back because of sea ice um, and that wasn't, you know, ideal. And then they go, uh, yeah, north to arrive at the Falkland Islands on the 31st of May. So they left on the 23rd, then arrived at a new place on the 31st. Uh, now on June 10th, so 10 days-ish later, 1916, there was a second rescue attempt and this was on a trawler. Um, it was loaned and provisioned by the Uruguayan government, but they again got turned back by ice. So they gave it a crack, but it didn't work out. Then they had to wait a little bit longer. So July 12th, so a month later, there was a third rescue attempt by a schooner Emma and it was chartered and provisioned by donations raised at Punta Arenas in Chile, mm -hmm. also to be turned back by ice. So right. all these people had like worked really hard to try to help them. They'd raised money, um, you know, like just the, the community and the way that they were determined to save these people, which this is months gone by now. Like this is, he's arrives in May. It's now the end of July. Yeah. So they're, they're like, well, this is not working out as well as we would have hoped. On August 25th, 1916, there was a fourth rescue attempt by the steam tug Yelcho, which was loaned by the Chilean government. On August 30th of 1916, they saw Elephant Island. <laughs> so it's been a little ways of time. They got on a steam chug. And they have arrived on the 30th of August. The boat soon approached close enough for Shackleton, who was standing at the bow, to shout to Wilde, who was another one of the guys that had left, they'd left on Elephant Island. Are you all well? And Wilde replied, all safe, all well. And the boss replied, thank God. Now, <laughs> <laughs> one of the kids that was left at Elephant Island, um, now he wasn't working with the expedition, but he was very young. He was like 14 years old. Um, his name is Blackborough. Um, surname, I would assume. Now he had gotten frostbite during the months that they'd spent on this time. Um, and unfortunately had to have a couple of toes amputated by some of the surgeons that were also there. But even though that had happened during that time and he couldn't walk, um, when the boat arrived, he was carried to a high rock and then he was propped up in his sleeping bag so that he could see what was going on. See the ship coming to take them home, see them, Aww. save them. Just super cute. Now, Frank Wilde uh, invited Shackleton ashore to see how they lived on the island. Uh, but Shackleton was like, I'm okay. Do we want to maybe just quickly get on this boat so that we don't get iced yeah. in again? <laughs> so <laughs> Frank's like, you've got to see what we've done with the dining area. It's just <laughs> delightful. We made some ice for chairs and we've got an ice dining table. Uh, now, Shackleton's like, nah, we're good. So within an hour, they were headed north to the world from which no news had ever been heard since October 1914. 
the crew that was left on Elephant Island had survived there for 137 days. It was 128 days since Shackleton had left for South Georgia with his small crew on the James Card. Not a single man of Shackleton's original 28 was lost. And though the endurance was lost at sea, the James Card was brought back to England and it survives to this day at Dulwich College in London. Holy moly. Ernest, you absolute legend. Do you know He what? did it. <laughs> it is so refreshing, Kate, to hear of a story like this. Because, you know, we, how many stories have we done where people turn to absolute barbarism? Yeah. They go into murder mode or survival mode or they kill one another or they, like, lose hope. Like, and yeah. I, we can't judge because here's you and I sitting all comfy and warm in our homes and our lovely yeah. privileged lives. But, my goodness, it is really refreshing to hear a story of such determination to... And care yeah. and kindness and whatever. I'm sure they had some low points. I'm sure they had some arguments. I'm sure some people lost yeah, for the plot sure. a little bit. Don't know That's how right. their mental health and well-being is. <laughs> they might also need to go to the GP for a mental health plan after that. Whole so. <laughs> thing. But it was amazing. I read the whole story and that is a very, um, you know, there was so much more that happened and so much more detail that is included on a really great, great website, which I do not have in front of me right now. But if you just search up Ernest Shackleton, it'll be one of the first that pops up. Now, one of the things um, which I didn't mention, I have likely cut it out of my story, was that they had a photographer on board. And when they left the ship, they saved all of his photographs. So they are, you know, pictures from the time, pictures mm. from those days, pictures of the ship and its decay in the ice, uh, pictures of all the men who were there. It's pretty incredible. It's a pretty amazing piece of history and I really enjoyed reading the story. So if you want to hear more about it, you know, you can definitely look up. I'm sure there's other podcasts that have done it, but I thought it was just amazing because we do tend to find those stories which are pretty, you know, hectic or, yeah, that turn to sad things. Um but yeah, that one was a good one. I have one more though. I've got one more. And this one was a little more, not weird, but I'll tell you about it. It's definitely off the beaten track. It's more of a modern times. This could be something you could find yourself in the situation of, Dom. So let me get through it. It is what I titled The Frozen Lady. Jean Hillard was found in a friend's driveway, literally frozen stiff like a piece of meat out of the deep freeze. She had spent a night outside in minus 30 degrees Celsius weather and her skin and muscles were frozen solid like an icicle. Doctors described her recovery as a miracle and it's one that is still, has, still hasn't been adequately explained 35 years later. Jean's ordeal began when her car skidded off a remote stretch of road as she was driving home to her parents' house late uh, on the night of December 20th, 1981. This being the 80s, she didn't have a phone to call for help, so Jean started walking to her friend Wally Nelson's, which was just a couple of miles down the road. Unfortunately, Nelson's place was further away than she remembered and her strength faded as she got to his driveway. Uh -huh. She collapsed 15 feet from his door at one in the morning. Now, when Nelson found her the following day, six hours later, he thought she was dead. Her face was ghost-like. He loaded what he could only assume was her body into his car diagonally. Like she's literally frozen solid. solid and she looks, there's pictures. It's terrifying. It looks like a toy. It's so 
Her eyes are open. She has an expression on her face like it's terrifying. Now, when she arrived at the hospital, doctors found that her temperature was too low to register on a thermometer and found that they couldn't do anything intravenously because her skin was too frozen to penetrate with a hypodermic needle. Her heart was still beating, but it was beating at about 12 beats a minute as opposed to the usual 60 to 100. Yeah. And yet somehow after thawing her out with warm packs around her body, Jean made a full recovery. She didn't even lose so much as a finger to frostbite. As the doctor told the New York Times later on, I have seen a lot of people frozen like that, but I have never seen a case where major amputation wasn't required. And I had leveled with Jean and her parents and told them that she would probably lose both her legs or her arms, but she is alive and I cannot believe it. She made a full recovery. She's fine. Oh my Lord. I just don't, (laughs) I don't even know that it's like something out of the movies. It's like Mr. Freeze just popped out of the bushes. It was like, I know. (laughs) Ice to meet you. (laughs) (laughs) Take two of these and call me in the morning. Um, She was fine. She was so fine. Like it's crazy. Um, but, but the talk pictures about are terrifying. Yeah. Oh like, my God. It's like her arm is left arm is up and her face, it like, she is a complete popsicle. Like imagine picking her up. Was she being like super heavy and just popping her into your car? Like she'd be like a standee. It's quite like, it's not funny, but it's funny. You it know, kind of she's funny. totally and frozen. <laughs> I know his name is Wally Nelson, but I just pictured <laughs> Willie Nelson walking out with I, a joint <laughs> and a bean and a banjo and being like, Oh, Lordy. Imagine <laughs> Imagine walking out, being like, Jean, Jean, what are you doing on the lawn? What are you, Jean? I wonder Ah, how many times she pissed herself to stay warm. Oh, I don't even know. She would have passed out for sure. She would have been so cold. Yeah. she didn't lose any fingers or toes or anything. Like that's bonkers. Yeah. I'd be curious to know if she was conscious or what level of consciousness she had when oh yeah when Wally picked her up and you know if she was awake the whole time or if you know how they say how the body just sort of goes into <laughs> yeah sorry I just had, I just had like a whole national lampoons thought like he just popped her on the roof racks and done God, sorry. Yes, but yeah, in terms of like a going into that uh, survival state, Mm. her heart was still beating, but at twelve beats a minute, that's wild. Yeah. Well, look, maybe maybe Walt Disney will be able to be revived back in the day. Revived. That's right. Exactly. It makes you think of that. All right. Now, quickly before I leave you, I wanted to give you my pop culture reference of the week. And because we're talking about snow and ice and survival, the one that popped into my brain is none other than The Revenant. Have you seen, Dom? Okay. Don't judge me, Kate. I might. (laughs) (laughs) She has. I might judge you. I have started it. Okay. And stopped. And I just think I wasn't in the right frame of mind when I first started it. And I'm like, oh, fuck, I'm not going to enjoy this. I'm ruining what should be and is considered a really great movie. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to ruin it. So I'm going to just, instead of forcing myself to watch it, I'm going to stop it. And one day I'll go back and watch it. And I haven't done it. Okay. So here's my um, thing. 
about okay. this movie. Its runtime is two hours and 36 minutes. Awesome. That, for me, is too long. It's okay. too long for me to be interested in a film of this uh, kind of nature. Now, it's based on a true story of a uh, um, trapper, fur trapper by the name of Hugh Glass. If you haven't seen it, go and read. Uh, I could read you the whole thing. But it's, yeah, based on a true story uh, where he, you know, people think that he's dying because he gets attacked by a bear, but he survives. And then the guys abandon him and then he tries to kill the guys that abandoned him. Two hours, 36 minutes. It's really pretty, but... I tried to figure out why I didn't really love it, but then I managed to find some reviews that kind of surmised my thoughts about it. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to share those with you. Um, One of the reviews said, uh, in favor of nonstop mesmerizing technical achievements, the film fails to be anything other than a series of striking images. So the cinematography is phenom. They won five Academy Awards, including Leonardo DiCaprio won his first Academy Award for acting cool now another review said that um inaritu who's the director is an undeniably talented filmmaker and a good storyteller but he's developing a nasty habit of becoming insufferably artsy now i've become i've been described in the same way so <laughs> i know i know the feels yep. insufferably artsy uh finally one of the uh last reviews that i saw which aligned with my thinking was i admired its ambition but also found it an endurance test i was longing for it to be over and so relieved when it was which funny enough my last relationship was a review of <laughs> a review of my last relationship <laughs> it was an endurance test and i was so relieved when it was over so that is those are my thoughts it's stunning it's beautiful put it on in the background you don't really need to pay attention in sense of yeah please disagree with me please reach out that's fine that's my opinion (laughs) that's my opinion (laughs) now kate the burning question i'm sure everyone is wanting to know hit me if you were ernest shackleton Uh and you had just survived this massive ordeal you know Four different rescue attempts. No thanks. Don't need to see the camp. Finally got back home, had a cup of tea. And the prime minister or the president or whatever called you and said, so would you have stayed, gone to war, or would you have kept going on the trip if if you'd known what had happened? Which would you have done? Stay for the war or go on the trip? I think I would have gone on the trip. Yeah. I think if that, I mean, based on reading a little bit about Ernest and how, you know, passionate he was and how this mission was something that took him years to organize. Like he had to do fundraising. It almost fell through all these times. Mm. I would definitely do that because there's a true passion in that. And they were all under the impression that the war was going to last like four or five months. They thought that they were, that's no problem. So like, we'll just, you know, march in and get everyone together and get it sorted and we'll be, you know, that it'll be over by the time we get back. Mm. So I think, you know, without enough information, you'd be like, well, if the prime minister's saying I can go, you know, Winston Churchill is like, you can go on your sailing trip. Then I would. That was really good. <laughs> John Lithgow's got nothing on you, Kate. <laughs> we will fight them on the beaches. Uh... <laughs> oh my God, folks, please welcome Winston Churchill. Winston to the Churchill. <laughs> Lizzie Truss is out there giving out scotch fingers. And cups of tea, doll. Pop on out. She'll sort you. She'll sort you, Winston. No, only half a scotch finger. <laughs> She's conservative. Oh, okay. Thank you very much, Dom. Would you do it? I forgot to ask you back. That's rude. 
Would you go to war or go oh. exhibition? Expedition? <laughs> Fuck my drag. Um, uh, we yeah. have lost the plot, everybody. <laughs> yeah, Just of hang course. in there. I mean, and I don't want to make light of war. War is horrible and terrible, but I'm sure that trip for all the things that did go wrong, what they did for science, what they did for, you know, exploring and everything is pretty bloody amazing. And if people don't know who Shackleton is, like go back Mm. and do yourself a favour. I know if you're not history buffs or all this sort of old-timey stuff's not your thing, it is, he's like, his adventures are stuff of legend and you should definitely go read as much as possible about it. So I would definitely have gone on the trip. Yeah, I had no idea who Erda Shackleton was. I met him for the first time today. I knew about him for the first time today. So if there's one person out there who doesn't know him and wants to, yeah, just learn about cool stuff, do it. Go look it up. Well done, Guess what? Thank you. I love you. (laughs) We love you. That was an epic, epic, epic tale. You did that to death. Thanks, I did. <laughs> well, not in this case. Nobody died. I know. Well, actually, a couple of those guys that were with, uh, you know, old mate from Australia, Douglas. Um, but anyway. Yeah. A couple of times we lost. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, everybody. We love you. Love you, love you. And, uh, yeah, look at our socials for some additional photos and stuff from this episode. And we will speak to you so soon. See you next week. Hopefully feeling better. Yay! Love yous. Bye. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs> That's a wrap. Big shout out to everyone for tuning in to Shit and Bricks. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us. Plus, you can find extra little nuggets on our socials. Next week, we'll be back talking more shit, so do not forget to tune in. And remember to wipe, flush, and wash your hands. Goodbye. Goodbye.